0: So we think about the wonder of this season and waiting, like Pastor Jerry in the video, waiting on it to snow. I hope he doesn't have to wait too long because waiting can be painful. Would you agree with that? And when we're waiting for something to happen, the only thing that's going to get us through is the expectation that there might be some sort of a final resolve of that. That is heavy. Thank you, John. Can you recall the feeling, or maybe it's just me, telephoning a company to straighten out a billing issue or something like that? And they put you on hold. Anybody been there, done that? You're in you're in that queue and you're dreading it's going to be a, a very long wait. You know, now they have this AI computer that will tell you the exp- approximate time before you get a live person. Your call will be answered in 18 hours and 4 minutes, you know, something you know, like that. How terrible would it be if there were AI computers in real life, like out of a sci-fi? Your answer for a spouse will be two years and three days. From this point on, it's approximately seven months before you get the job you want. The relief from your pain is approximately 178 days. Now, I'm thankful life isn't really like that because the problem with waiting is not knowing the point of resolution. And the real fear you and I always have is that it's never going to get resolved. And the darkness that we're going through is just something that we're going to have to live with. So, this waiting is inevitable. We live in a not-yet world, and waiting on the Lord is optional. It's a choice, and that's the background of Isaiah chapter 9. So, grab a Bible in the chair in front of you. Turn to page 492. I hope I got that right, or you have your iphone or whatever hook up to the wi-fi i want you to really look at scripture this morning in isaiah chapter nine and we're going to start with a very peculiar verse verse one and you read this and you go what in the world is this even doing in the bible are you with me here we go isaiah chapter nine verse one there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. The her's talking about God's people. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. Now you look at that and you go, what in the world? I'm glad that wasn't our devotional for the morning. You know, what does that even mean? So. I get to give you a little history lesson this morning, which I happen to love. So what this is a reference to is something in history called the Assyrian crisis. So bear with me here. So historically, when Isaiah is prophesying, it's during the time of the divided kingdom. There had been a civil war among God's people. Twelve tribes broke off. They went to the north. The northern kingdom usually has the name Israel. Two tribes broke off to the south. They're usually called Judah. You with me? Ten, two, Israel, Judah, north, south. Now these two kingdoms have not gotten along for about 200 years. And there's a lot of secular history going on With this. So, what happens is King Ahaz, he is the king of Judah. That is the kingdom of David. And God has promised that there will always be somebody sitting on the throne in Judah. But the people are worried to death because just north, the kingdom, the ten tribes, have gone in cahoots with another country called Syria. They have formed this coalition, and the kingdom of the south is afraid they're going to come and attack and conquer the southern kingdom. Now, through Isaiah, God has something to say about all this. And so, through Isaiah, God said to King Ahaz, Wait, hold on, don't do anything rash, don't make a snap judgment. Don't worry about this northern confederation of Israel and Syria. Just wait. Believe in God. Trust in God. But Ahaz was a wicked king, and he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to believe in God, and so he came up with his alternate plan. He devised a plan. He began to execute his own plan. So this waiting on the Lord is optional. It's always a choice. But when we devise our own plans, gloom and anguish are the usual results. So what Ahaz did, he devised this plan to form an alliance with the biggest country the world knew at that point called Assyria. And he made a partnership with Assyria to say, look, if Syria and Israel attack me, you come to my rescue." Now, God had specifically told all of his kings never form an alliance with pagan nations because those pagan nations, they're going to infect my people. They're going to bring in their unbelief. They're going to bring in their idolatry. Never make a treaty with a pagan nation. So God sends Isaiah to Ahaz and says, wait, hold your horses. I'll deliver you. I promise to deliver you. In fact, I'll give you a sign. You ask for a sign, Ahaz. Any sign, any sign, and I'll give you a sign. These two kings are not going to defeat you. Don't form an alliance with Assyria. Well, Ahaz won't ask for a sign because he's already made up his mind. He's got a plan. He's going to do what he wants to do. He's not going to wait upon the Lord. So flip back in your Bible just a couple of pages to Isaiah chapter 7, because I want you to see this, and then I'll be done with the history lesson, okay? I promise. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 11. So a second time, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahab said, I will not ask, I will not put to the Lord to the test. Now, he's sounding real righteous, but he's a wicked man. He's just not going to trust God. So you and I, we all often lie before God. You know, we come up with some excuse to do what we're going to do. And then Isaiah gets a little irate here. He says, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? It's like Isaiah said, I'm tired of this. (laughs) I've come to you time and time again. Trust God. Wait on the Lord. But will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. Now, that is a wonderful one of the first Christmas prophecies that we have from this great book of Isaiah. Now, the takeaway from this is, you know, I don't know about you, but anytime the Lord offers me a promise a promise of deliverance, a promise to bring me out of my darkness. And then if he were to say, now, David, just ask for a sign, any sign, and I'll I'll prove it. I hope I'm down with that. But a lot of times, we've already got our little plans in motion like Ahaz. And this waiting and trusting on the Lord is optional. We devise our own plans, and gloom is the usual result. Now, let me give you a little side note here. God gives a sign anyway. Ahaz says, you know, Ahaz, you go do what you want to do, but I'm going to give a sign anyway because I made a promise to King David that an heir of his would sit always on the throne in Jerusalem. David's kingdom is never going to end. And so what God is saying through Isaiah is even if God has to bring a descendant of David into this world through a virgin in order to fulfill his promise, God's prepared to do that. And God does that. And we see that in the birth of Jesus Christ. This promise is designed to show Ahaz he needs to trust God, not Assyria, and that even though the line of David is being threatened with invasion and extinction, God is never going to let that happen. End of the history lesson. (laughs) Fast forward that to the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. You have a Savior born in the line of David who now sits on the throne forever and ever. I hope that brings joy to your heart. 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah was speaking this to an old wicked king. I've got this. Don't do anything rash. I'll save you. I've made a promise that someone is going to sit on the throne of David forever and ever. Well, when we come back then to our story in chapter 9, Isaiah sees that Ahaz hires this nation of Assyria, and sure enough, well, I guess I'm not through with the history lesson. Here's some more for you. He hires Assyria to come and and be his ally, and he agrees to pay them. He agrees to pay them well. He pays them in silver and gold. Guess where he gets the money? He gets it from the temple of God in Jerusalem. He actually raids the silver and the gold utensils to pay off um, Assyria. And here's what happened. After the Assyrians came through and they crushed Syria and the northern kingdom, they decide, you know, why stop? Yeah, we made an alliance with it, and let's just keep going. We'll just take the southern kingdom too. And they march into the southern kingdom and they put a great siege on Jerusalem. The northern kingdom's done for good. It is wiped out to history. Those ten tribes are scattered. You never hear from them again. God uses a a pagan king to do his will. The northern kingdom's gone, but God is going to protect the throne of Jerusalem, even though it looks bleak. So that's where chapter 9 opens. And the prophet is saying that this gloom and anguish is not going to last forever. The kingdom of David will never fail or fall. Just wait, because God is going to restore both kingdoms and enlarge his kingdom, and it's going to include more people than just the Jews. It will include all the earth. So let's go back to verse 1, see if it makes any sense. Okay, there's going to come a time, God says, there'll be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Nephali. Those were two of those 10 tribes. But in the latter times, he's going to make glorious by the way of the sea. He's going to go beyond the land of the Jordan River. He's going to go beyond Galilee to the nations. It's going to include everyone. So these two tribes in particular are mentioned, just two of the ten, Zebulun and Naphtali. God treated them with contempt for their part in the war against Judah. Now, I'm not sure why they are singled out, but I have a theory. These two tribes out of the ten surrounded what we know as the Sea of Galilee. They're the most northern tribes. They surround the Sea of Galilee, and this is going to be the place where Jesus Christ offers his major teachings around Galilee, the original land of Zebulun and Naphtali. So in the future, God says, I'm going to make this area glorious again. But this glory is going to go beyond the Sea of Galilee. It's going to go beyond the River Jordan. It's going to go to the non-Jews. It's going to include the Gentiles. And they also are going to have a place in this kingdom, this eternal kingdom, where someone from the throne of David is going to sit forever and ever and ever. This is a tremendous prophecy here. Now, to see this fulfilled... Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. If you don't want to lose your place, it's going to be on the screen here. Matthew 4. We see this fulfilled. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, talking about John the Baptist was thrown into prison, he withdrew into where? Galilee, Galilee, thank you. Y'all can be interactive today. So he leaves Nazareth. He only goes to Jerusalem for special occasions. So he withdraws into Galilee. He came and settled there, which is by the sea in the region of what? Zebulun and Naphtali. There it is. This is to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow, thank you, (laughs) upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for this kingdom of heaven is at hand. 700 years before he was born, and Isaiah is laying out the plan of God for those who will wait and trust in the eternal plan of God. Salvation is for everyone through repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. What are people to do with their gloom and anguish? They are to claim the promises of Jesus because we cannot save ourselves. Now, let's continue to look at the bulk of our verses, verses 2 through 5, because a part of this is when Jesus went to preach to all the people, It says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now, I want you to be thinking that uh, for the next 10 minutes. How have you seen God's light shine out of your darkness? Because this is a promise. And notice it says, the people who walk in darkness will. There's the promise. Will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them as it shone on you. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of the harvest. Like when the harvest comes in, people are excited. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for fire. I won't give you that history lesson. You can look it up on your own. What a promise. Ahaz, you're trusting in somebody else. Yeah, they've invaded your country. They have Jerusalem, my capital city, under siege. But their plans were failed, and your plans have already fallen. And I'm going to open this thing up. There's going to be a, a king on this throne, and it's going to be everybody's king. And those people who walk in darkness will see a light. Those in a dark land, this light is going to shine on them. And what I want you to notice about verses 2 through 5 is technically in Hebrew, all of these things are written in past tense. They're written in such a way that it happened. This is the prophet's always way of saying the promises of God are in past tense. They are going to happen even though they haven't happened yet. Does that make sense? Now, in the version we use here at the Ridge, New American Standard, is already put in present tense for us. It's already there. It says, uh, uh, they will see a great light. Technically, it says, they have seen a great light. These people in darkness, they have. They've already seen a great light. It says, the light has shone. More of your modern translations, just go ahead and put it in future tense. Even though it's technically past tense, it will shine. So this prophetic past tense is designed to assure you and me that even though circumstances that we're going through right now, they're grim, our hope may be fading, darkness may be swallowing up, the fulfillment of God's promise of rescue is certain. It's going to happen. This is the prophetic wonder. Now, the second thing I want you to notice in these next verses is that our rescue comes in a child that is born to us. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child will be born, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government. (laughs) Man, his kingdom is just going to keep expanding. It's going to keep growing. And so will peace. And on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and evermore. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. There is a child coming who will work on our behalf and establish the fullness of God's kingdom. And, of course, this child is Jesus Christ. Does that not stir your heart? And as we start moving in this Christmas season, we're always looking to get in the Christmas spirit. If this doesn't do it, I don't know what will. That God has been working on our behalf 700 years, even before the birth of Christ, and now we're 2,000 years passing, and He's still bringing light out of the darkness. His kingdom is still growing. And we have these wonderful words, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Every time I I see those phrases, I can't help but think of Handel's Messiah. And that song, it's it's too bad we can't sing that in church. We'd be here four hours, you know. But, uh, man, I just, that wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. What does that mean? Wonderful counselor carries a connotation in the Hebrew that this person will be endowed with supernatural wisdom. This is not the wisdom of man. This is supernatural wisdom. And we see that in Jesus Christ. In the text for today, we have King Ahaz. He doesn't want to sign. He doesn't want to trust in God. He wants to trust in his own wisdom. He's going to form an alliance with a pagan nation, and it's going to be disastrous. But this king who comes is going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to have wisdom endowed from on high. It's going to be supernatural. And Jesus is going to teach in a way that just marveled. People marveled at it. They never heard anyone speak like this. At the age of 12, he's confounding the scholars in the temple. He is our wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. This child will be God Almighty in the flesh. Isaiah is giving full testimony to the full divinity of Jesus. He doesn't say that the child will be like mighty God. He says, this child will be called mighty God. This is God in the flesh. He'll be everlasting Father. Now, this can be somewhat puzzling because when you read about Jesus being called eternal Father, now wait a minute, I thought God was the Father, He's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit. Well, This is not talking about the Trinity. In the Old Testament age, kings were referred to as fathers. We don't always see it in the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament era, history time, kings were called sometimes fathers because they were the spiritual and the political fathers of their people. So what Isaiah is saying here is that this person being called Everlasting Father means that he is going to be the king. He's going to be the ruler of his people. He is going to be the eternal king. He's going to be the endless monarch. That means his reign will know no end. And, of course, that's emphasized in verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government because he is the eternal king, the eternal father, who sits on the throne of David forever and ever and ever. Everlasting Father. And then he's called the Prince of Peace. He is the one who's going to bring peace to his people. What is the answer to the crisis that the people face when a wicked king and nations are attacking them? The answer is going to be a child who's going to be called Prince of Peace. And, of course, you remember in our Christmas story what the angel said Uh, to to the shepherds about Jesus. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he's pleased. It would be a real shame for you and I to go through the Christmas season with all the beauty, all the sentiment, all these wonderful prophecies and not believe that Jesus is the one who is our peace, the Prince of Peace. You and I, we live in a broken world. We cause our brokenness, and sometimes other people attribute to our brokenness. And we try all manner of things to escape our anguish and our gloom. But we can't escape our brokenness. And God is not willing for us to suffer like that, so He sent Jesus Christ. And Jesus came into this world as prophesied. He died on the cross for our sin as prophesied. And He rose again as prophesied. And He can kick a door of escape into our brokenness for us to escape. The choice is we have to believe and we have to surrender To follow Jesus. That is the good news of Christmas. That's where we get the peace from the Prince of Peace. And finally, this prophecy ends with the Lord making a bold declaration the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is going to happen. This is an Old Testament way of saying the deliverance that I am going to bring, I am going to do it, and it's going to be because of my grace and because of my mercy. I find it interesting that God doesn't say, well, you guys, you're on your own. Just go out and do something valiant and save yourselves. Perform this little list of tasks for your deliverance. No, he says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give a sign whether the king believes it or not. I'm going to do what is necessary for a Savior to be provided for you, for you to be rescued. Wait on me and trust in me. I will deliver you. The zeal of the Lord is going to cause his people who are in darkness to see a great light. So i to close this morning and give you some examples of light that's all around us. It encourages me to see people walking out of darkness into the light. It encourages me to see how people deal with bleak times and yet the glory of the light of God shining on them as they go through it. A few months ago, you'll remember Terry and Debbie Bird lost a uh, granddaughter in a tragic car accident. About a week or so after that, I saw Debbie and asked how she was doing. She said, I'm making a list of things that I'm thankful for that I see God doing in this situation. She said, I have five things. She talked about how there were big box of pots and pans in the middle seat, but they removed them just in time to put backpacks or the impact of the collision. Those pots and pans would have been flying everywhere and probably injured a lot more people. I went home and told Brenda, I said, I've never thought about journaling in my dark times looking for the things that God is doing. I saw her a few weeks later. I said, I just want to tell you, Debbie, that, that has inspired me to see how you are looking for the light in a very dark situation. She said, well, I'm up to about 17 now. So this week when I was preparing this sermon, I sent her an email. I said, Do I have permission to, to use your story? And she said, Yes. She said, Would you like to see my journal? I said, sure. She sent it to me. Hey, we're up to 34. Some of these things just, just jumped out at me. There were there's a, a friend, her name is Ashley Wynn. You'll never meet her, probably. I won't either. But when this happened, she had not gotten a job yet. So she was able to take one of the other granddaughters, uh, Janie, to college and actually stay with her a while through this you know, grieving transition. I think about Ashley Wynn. I wonder how many times she went before God and said, God, when are you going to give me a job? I've waited a long time. Are you going to take care of me or do I just need to you know, take my life in my own hands? And I can just hear God saying, Ashley, just wait on me. I got a per- There's a reason you don't have a job yet. I don't know the follow-up to that. I bet she's got a glorious job by now. <laughs> Lindsay and Caleb had a house that had not sold after being on the market for several months. But it was made available to us while Amanda was in the hospital five minutes from the hospital. How many times Lindsay and Kevin, when are you going to sell this house? Come on. Houses are selling like hot cakes. Why is our house not selling? Oh, I got a I plan for you. Don't go do anything rash or crazy. I've got deliverance in mind. I did not get to see it with my eyes. You did. First Sunday and second Sunday in October, I was gone, and Mike Blodgett was here. Some of you may or may not remember Mike. I baptized Mike years ago at another church. <coughs> Mike overcame a lot of stuff in his life, uh, hard drinking one of them. Mike accepted Christ. He began to walk with the Lord, and his time among us here the last eight years had he got brain cancer. It was inoperable when he found out about it. Couldn't drive, and a couple of our members would bring him to church. And I remember I was going to be gone that Sunday. I called Mike up and I said, you know, Jerry, the elders, they'd like to just pray over you. Is there any way you could be here that Sunday? He said, I would love for that. Now, the story I heard, and Mike usually sat right back over there, is that when it came time to pray over Mike, Every chair, every rear end got up and went and prayed over Mike. I've never seen that in this church. We prayed over people. I, can, I didn't get to witness it, but I got it right here. And I'm going, there's a light of people right there, shining in the dark moment. And I got to be with Mike the final couple of weeks of his life, passing the glory, knew where he's going. Sometimes I get upset with all of you as a staff member because y'all don't do what I want you to do. I wonder why more of you don't come out on Wednesday night and go knock on doors and share three circles and attend, you know, evangelism training. And, you know, I have my agenda like King Ahaz. (laughs) I tell you what, it blesses my heart when someone just a few weeks ago and said, David, You know, I sat down at at work the other day and the opportunity came up and I shared those three circles with somebody at work. I can't tell you how that just jumped in my heart. Because there's more things going on around than I get to see. And sharing those three circles is not like inviting somebody to church or say, I'll pray. I mean, that's gospel presentation right there. You get through those three circles. I think about our Advent offering every year. Our elders pray and set this big, huge goal. and (laughs) Wow. It's like we make it every year. $80,000. And it goes toward different mission points around the world, like the Israels that you saw, France the week before. And, you know, sometimes I don't think you ever get to see The light that comes out of the darkness. I get to see it because I get to go visit those places. We might get it in, you know, a newsletter or something like that. But even just a few weeks ago, Clement over in France, raised Muslim, accepted Christ as Savior, been baptized as being discipled. People are coming out of darkness. They're coming into light. And we get to have a part in that. I want you to really think about that. This is not just a commercial to give to the Advent offering, but it's, you know, I'm telling you, this is one of the ways that God just moves in the heart of this church. And I just want to brag on you and commend you before the Lord. Well, there's probably other examples of light all around us. At the 9 o'clock hour, one man shared how he was, visiting some relatives, and he went to go get on his plane up in the northeast. And he got on the plane. The plane was full. They wouldn't take his luggage. They would take him, wouldn't take his carry-on. And he was kind of upset on the inside, but, you know, was trying to listen to them and wound up the luggage had to get shipped later. And he sits down next to this girl on the plane And she's got a load full of dogs that she's shipping. and (laughs) He's going, well, that's not fair that you don't get your carry-on. He's thinking, they let your dogs on. (laughs) All he had, all he took from his luggage to carry on was his Bible. It's 730 in the morning. She orders a Jack and Coke. And then as they're talking, she goes, well, I think I may have a drinking problem. Yeah, you think? And they get to talking and Glenn shares scripture because all he has is his Bible. And she says, you know, everyone I talk to, they've been telling me scriptures. And I got to tell you, those scriptures, I'm, I'm starting to think that through. Would you pray for me? I'm on my way to Ohio. I'm going to move him. I don't know how this is going to work. I'm going to be working with her. But would you pray for me? We live in a dark, broken world, folks but we have the light of Jesus Christ. It doesn't take much to encourage people. This waiting on the Lord, trusting in the Lord, it's optional. We don't have to do it. But the results are pretty bad. When God says, I got this, If I can protect the throne in Jerusalem, if I can put a ruler on that throne forever and ever and ever, and if I can do it through a virgin, I got this. I got your darkness. I got your gloom. I got your anguish. I got your hurt. I got your pain. So as you're waiting for God to answer, as Pastor Jerry's waiting for it to snow, Trust in God, for there is a light that has shone in our darkness. We're going to pray, and I hope that gives us maybe a new perspective when we come and do communion together. If there's just special hurt, special darkness, special anguish you have, uh, one of our elders and his wife, Graham and Suzanne Haygood are going to be over here by the door. Just, Just go over there and say, hey, would you pray for me? And somebody right now thinking, I don't want to do that. Do it. Let me tell you, you will be blessed just to be prayed for. It's also just a step of faith to say, okay, Lord, I believe. I'm going to step out. I'm going to ask somebody pray for me. And as we share these communion elements, the body that was broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us, man, Isaiah's got all this. He talks about all of it. 700 years before Jesus was ever born, God told Isaiah, here's how this is going to play out. Prophetic wonder, waiting and trusting in God. Even in the pain, even in the crisis, even in the attack. A light has shone. Let me pray for you.